In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Herschel Walker gives a stiff arm to Republican debates. I'm thinking about debating what Raphael won off, because that's who I need to be debating right now. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. Co-host Patricia Murphy is off this week, taking a much-needed vacation. So we are joined by AJC Managing Editor Leroy Chapman to talk about the wild start to the week at the Georgia Capitol. Thanks, Leroy, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Greg. A quick reminder, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, we'd appreciate it if you follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Give us a proper rating, too. Later, we'll dig into the rush before crossover day, what bills might make it, what bills are on the cusp, what bills are dead. But first, it's qualifying week for the 2022 campaigns, with the biggest news so far coming in the Senate race. It is the honor of my life to represent the people of Georgia and the United States Senate. And uh, grateful for the opportunity to qualify again today, and I'm on my way back to D.C. The incumbent Raphael Warnock made it official. He, of course, is running for a full term in the U.S. Senate. Herschel Walker also qualified. He faced Capitol reporters for the first time and said he has absolutely no interest in debating the Republican rivals he must face in the primary. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to here to do that. I think if people are speaking, Herschel is here to debate Raphael Warnock because I'm going to win this primary and I'm going to the general to beat him as well. Of course, State Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black told WSB-TV he's not impressed. He's not coming to debates. That's why he won't return your phone call. Is because uh, I'm just simply asking, what are you dodging? You're afraid of me, please. And as I was listening to that audio, I realized he was talking to both me and Richard Elliott when he said those things, um, talking about how Herschel Walker, Leroy, has been reluctant to talk to the AJC, to talk to um, uh, not-so-friendly media outlets, right? He's mostly done uh, interviews with friendly media outlets like Fox News, sports-related media outlets. He hasn't done nearly as many unscripted, uh, uncontrolled media interviews with with uh, with with reporters who aren't as friendly to his campaign. Not to say we're not, you know, and we're not to say we're necessarily antagonistic, but we're also we're also not promoting his campaign necessarily, like like we see in some some conservative media. Um, that's all to say that gets a lot difficult. That strategy gets a lot difficult for Herschel Walker in, in in the next weeks and months. And even though he's leading big in the polls, he has fundraising advantages. He might not feel like he has to debate. Latham Sadler or Gary Black or Kelvin King, the three top Republican rivals he faces, he won't have that luxury against Raphael Warnock, especially if it's a close race. Yeah, at some point he is going to have to be ready for prime time. So, I mean, at this point, uh, Herschel is being handled. Uh, They're building a candidate. They have a measurement of where he is because 
even with some friendly media, we saw him stumble, right? So he uh, did not seem to be someone who had command of a lot of fact. Uh, he needs to bone up on how government runs. Uh, right now, I think we're hearing a lot of platitudes and some very basic things and some talking points that he's sticking to, but that can't last forever. And so the, the I think what we're seeing here is that uh, they're trying to give themselves uh, a whole lot of time so they don't make an unforced error <laughs> and uh, not, and wait until it's absolutely ne- necessary. So uh, there is going to become a time where uh, Herschel Walker is going to have to a- answer questions. And he's going to have to do so publicly and have to do so for media that you're right, who aren't promoting his campaign, because that's really it. I mean, there there, there are some outlets that are decidedly conservative and, and probably pro Walker. And uh, at a certain point, he's going to have to talk to traditional media outlets and, and they're going to ask him probing questions, as we should do. And, and this is just part of what uh, uh, him winning the Senate seat is going to be about at a certain point. He's going to have to. Uh, to be ready for prime time. Yeah, you mentioned unforced errors, and already we've seen um, uh, several, right, from from Herschel Walker talking to even friendly outlets. Um, he called John Lewis a senator and said he wouldn't have supported, he said that John Lewis wouldn't have supported the, the voting rights expansion named after him. Um, he said that it was unfair to be asked about his stance on the bipartisan infrastructure package that had become law weeks before. You know, not like it was still pending. It had already become law and the language was already out there. And, you know, he, he said later on that he would have opposed that because it, it deals too much with trees and, and climate change. So he says a, lot of, a number of objectionable things that will be brought up against him in the general election campaign. But so far, we haven't seen his Republican rivals well, we've seen Gary Black attack him relentlessly. We haven't seen Nathan Sadler or Kelvin King attack him relentlessly yet. But what we've also seen from Herschel Walker is he has scrupulously avoided saying <laughs> any of his Republican opponents' names. And that, to me, is the biggest indication of, of, of whether he's worried or not. The moment you see Herschel Walker worried about them kind of creeping up on him, you'll see him start to attack Nathan Sadler or Gary Black. But until he does that, he's, he's, he's looking at his own internal polls and saying, I don't need to spend any time on these guys because I'm the front runner. And you know the thing is this, he he's right. I mean, it's it's a it's a calculation that you understand. But but here's the thing though. At a certain point, and if he's he's if he's pivoting, if he is confident that he's going to be the nominee, and if he wants to train himself on Raphael Warnock, then actually it, it, he needs to start answering some questions for folks who will who who will have a higher standard of of an answer than you probably would in a Republican primary, because honestly, in a Republican primary, you're talking about these litmus tests about how conservative you are. <laughs> in a general, uh, I think your competency, your basic competency is going to be a much bigger issue. And he is going to have to get there quickly. So if he's pivoting toward Warnock and if they begin attacking Warnock, which at a, at a certain point, you know, if he's confident that he will be the nominee, I mean, they'll, they'll, they, they may start doing that, really just running the general election campaign. Then at a certain point, uh, Walker is going to have to answer some questions. And, uh, you know, he's going to be out and, and probably exposed at some point. And, you know, he'll need to be much better than he has been because basic things like knowing that, because they're, 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 there's one thing that there's a slip of the tongue, but there is another if there are a series of gaffes which say that you probably don't know a whole lot about politics, and certainly that the one thing you mentioned, uh, that's the way it seemed. And so, and so for, in, for a general election, general election crowd, 
the standard's going to be elevated. Yeah, I mean, right now his candidacy is is buoyed by both his high name recognition, his celebrity status, and of course Donald Trump's endorsement. Um, even without Donald Trump's endorsement, though, he would be um, his visibility would be very hard to compete with, right? I mean, long before he got in the race, we heard a string of candidates saying, "I'm only running if Herschel Walker doesn't," and that was even before we knew, it, you know, for sure that Donald Trump would endorse him. But as you mentioned. Even some of Herschel Walker's supporters have said that he needs to participate in debates because it will toughen him up. You know, it'll, it'll give him that experience to, to show a contrast, um, to be able to go toe-to-toe with Senator Warnock, who, as we both know, is very charismatic, has a way with words, and has been in the public spotlight for a long time, long before he was a U.S. senator, as the, as the leader of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah. I got to tell you, too, and there, there is... You know, you think about politics and, and, and uh, what a primary can do. Yeah, a primary can can toughen you up for a general election. And I, I, I'll i go back to my days when I was back in South Carolina as a politics editor, uh, seeing both John McCain and uh, Barack Obama come through in 2008. I mean, they both had tough, tough, tough primary opposition that I, I bet with both of them made them better candidates. And I, I saw John McCain come from behind and having to uh, to debate and having to, uh, you know, distinguish yourself. Uh, there is something that 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 certainly prepared him for in the general. Uh, of course, he lost. But uh, but also too, more notably, with Barack Obama, because he was a guy a little bit like Herschel Walker, who I think in the beginning uh, there was a novelty to his candidacy. And people were far more interested in the story of, of Barack Obama rather than what he knew <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that turned, of course, uh, in a primary because, uh, you know, his, his opponents wouldn't let him get, you know, let him get away with that. Well, with Walker, too, you know, what, what a tough primary could do is maybe expose some things that get settled early in the period and you don't necessarily have to deal with them. And I think about uh, some of the things uh, with the Obama candidacy back then. Uh, you know, he had uh, there was a photo where he had on a traditional head wrap that came out during the primary that actually, by the time it came down to the general election, it was so old and, and so many things. And there was distance in it. So there were a lot of things. In fact, the, the Reverend Wright stuff came out <laughs> mm-hmm. during during uh, that. That was that was Democrat on Democrat crime. That was not <laughs> that was not a Republican. That was not John McCain and Republicans unleashing uh, Reverend Wright. Uh, that was that was Democrat on Democrat crime. So anyway, the point with that is is certainly uh, if you think about today's politics, uh, there should be some legitimate, I think, concern that if he waltzes through, that there are a lot of things that will surface that the public will be hearing about for the first time about Walker. And it's much more damaging if it's going to happen during the general than it would be in the primary if he, if he survives it, squeaks through and is able to put it behind him. That's a great point because I think the same holds true right now. There's a lot of Republican on Republican crime when it comes to um, Herschel Walker. I'm not hearing much. I know Democratic, I know allies of Senator Warnock are involved because I'm hearing from them. Um, sometimes they're coming up with with hits and research and, and attack ads and things like that, but not hearing much from the Warnock campaign itself. But rest assured, they have a, a trove of attacks ready to go on Herschel Walker. Um, because in a sense, you know, as much as Senator Warnock 
two, about two years ago around this time was still something of an unknown quantity and Republicans were going through all of his speeches and sermons and writings and anything he ever did. Um, Democrats are doing the same thing. And Warnock has already withstood a lot of those attacks. Herschel Walker hasn't yet. Um, I'm glad you mentioned, too, the evolution of a candidate because that segues to the next topic, which is David Perdue. I watched him in 2013 and 2014 evolve as a candidate, as someone who it is one of his first events. People were kind of brushing right by him, had no idea who he was, coming, uh, turning into a legitimate Republican rock star by the end of that 2014 campaign where people would line up for selfies with him and, you know, um, bend over backwards to get to, to shake his hand. Um, so he went from an unknown to a, a, a somebody over that campaign, uh, but also learned a lot as a candidate. Um, didn't necessarily like campaigning. And I don't think he, I think it's safe to say he still might not like campaigning. He, back then he used to always talk about how much he hated it. He'd rather be elsewhere. Um, but that he was there because he felt like he needed to change the course of, of Georgia. Um, well, he famously skipped, it was a no-show, um, to the only Senate runoff debate about December of 2020. There's that unforgettable picture of John Ossoff on a stage, debate stage, with a empty podium, an empty lectern next to him where David Perdue was supposed to stand. Perdue at the time felt like tactically there was no reason to participate in the debate. He felt like it was only a matter of getting Republican voters to show up and that he could only lose voters if he participated in the debate with John Ossoff. Well, now he's in a different scenario. Does he do, to participate in multiple showdowns against Governor Brian Kemp, who has already set the stage, said that he would participate in four debates. We haven't heard ex exactly from Purdue's campaign yet how many debates, but we're thinking they'll they'll participate in at least one debate. So we'll see, and we'll see if it matters. But certainly, you've got a unique scenario where Governor Kemp, who's ahead in the polls and in money, is saying, "I have no problem <laughs> debating David Purdue. He has no problem drawing that contrast with the former senator." Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing, too, because uh, if you're if I'm thinking about the Purdue campaign and what I'm saying, um, I see Trump and I don't see much else. And uh, if, he, if, he, if they're making a calculation that uh, the Trump litmus test is enough, I'm very interested in seeing how that works out. But but, Greg, I think you, you bring up a great point, because, you know, ultimately, Kemp is the person who's saying, I'm going to take the fight to you and, and let you let, let's debate, let's square off. Uh, and I think he's probably doing that knowing that uh, that's also an opportunity for him, right? So if the Trump issues come up, he's able to to explain himself. <laughs> and so, you know, if you look at now where where the race might be, and I guess with, with uh, you, you know better than I, with what, what polling is saying, uh, we both know what the money's saying, right? <laughs> the money is, is squarely on the side of Kemp. Uh, he's got a lot of momentum. Um, and of course, the uh, with with that momentum, uh, you know why not? He has nothing to lose to say, you know, you know, meet me, meet me four times. <laughs> let's let's show. It. But but I think that's probably part of his his calculation too, right? Is that he's that if if the Trump issue is is the main thing with him, that uh, Kemp probably wants a couple of times to explain it and for people to hear from him, uh, because I think that there's probably a way where he could at least. If he's explaining either what happened in 2020 or what's happening now or turning the page, um, you know, having them do that face to face uh, is probably, you know, probably some advantage. Now, if, if you're um, Purdue, um, I'm not here to judge his debate skill, but I will tell you what I saw when he was against Ossoff. 
he did not stand a chance against John Ossoff, and, uh, and maybe he underestimated him. But um, uh, I think in those uh, in that the the one debate, um, you know, the takedown in that debate was was epic. And so, um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't know if 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 Purdue thinks that debate is a strong suit. You know, I always go back to that debate because I have to write. My job is to write the story, like as the debate's going on, and to publish it within minutes of the debate ending. And to me, the takeaway moment was another exchange. You know, where where I thought John Ossoff um, had the, got the better of David Purdue, but within a few minutes, you know, or a few hours, it was very clear that the takedown that you mentioned, there was this long extended monologue from John Ossoff that went really uncontested by David Perdue. That one got 13 or 14 million views within days, <laughs> within days. I mean, I tweeted about it and it went viral. Ossoff tweeted about it. Uh, my other, my tweets about Purdue didn't get, you know, get any social media traction uh, for whatever reason. Um, but I thought that was a, 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 an example of, Ossoff getting under Purdue's skin, and I know Brian Kemp will try to do the same thing. He will try to irritate him. He will try to get David Purdue angry because David Purdue has this reputation of being, not unlike his first cousin, of being a little hot-headed. And if you can get him riled up, he might just come off um, the wrong way to voters. And so that will clearly I, – I will not be surprised if that's Brian Kemp's debate strategy um, You know, going into this potential showdown. Yeah. Well, I'll just say this. Uh, my one extended conversation with uh, with uh, Senator Perdue, um, he that, that whole thing, I think, too, about maybe being uh, someone who uh, probably is not being accustomed to being told no <laughs> or being challenged. Uh, I think that's kind of apparent. And, uh, and, and I'm just using that just... From personal experience, I think that's apparent. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because in 2014 he faced Michelle Nunn, someone from near his hometown. Another, another, you know, um, his father and of course Michelle Nunn's father were friends growing up. They're both very involved in the Middle Georgia community. Um, David A. Purdue and and of course Sam Nunn, the former senator, um, they had great respect for each other. Um, David Purdue, of course, wanted to win, but felt like if Michelle Nunn had won it would be okay. Georgia would be in good, you know, this, that Senate seat would be in good hands. Um, John Ossoff, he felt, he felt very differently about it. He felt John Ossoff um, had never proven that he d- was worthy of that seat. He, he saw him as unworthy, as, as someone who had accomplished less than his own kids had, right? Uh, David Perdue and Brian Kemp's relationship is even more different because they were former allies. They do have, they did have respect for each other. I don't know if they still do, but they did used to have it. They both campaigned for each other. They both helped each other. Uh, and David Perdue has said, if Brian Kemp wins, he will enthusiastically endorse him. Um, so I don't know if there's that underlying, boiling, simmering tension that he had with John Ossoff. So if Kemp tries to get under his skin or tries to rile him up, I don't know if that will work. Yeah. I mean, but it's still an extraordinary thing that he's even in this race, though, right? I mean, you know, he's in it now. I mean, we're talking about it. We're forced to talk about it. But, but I mean, I just think it's still an extraordinary thing that he is in it because there were many, many reasons why it it may not have made the most. It, it just didn't seem to be the most probable thing at a certain point. And then things changed. And, and here we are. And so, you know, it may be after the smoke clears, uh, if Kemp is wins the nomination and he's reelected, um, you think about, you know, the, uh, you know, what's the, what's the future for Purdue? 
um, because, you know, he, as you said, swept in the office. He was able to, you know, cast himself as a competent businessman who could go to D.C. and be uh, a bit of an outsider, someone who um, then uh, be- became a, a, an important Trump ally. And uh, he winds up losing <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in a way that, that, that where the odds said he probably shouldn't have. Uh, and I think that that going back, there are a lot of things where where he probably should should never have lost that race, uh, but he did. I mean, the circumstances are what they were. But then I think you, you you leap toward here, we could wake up and he could be have lost two races in a row. Um, then what's next? I mean, uh, does that end a political career? That at, at one point, you know, he probably could have been a, a a senator who could have held that seat until he didn't want anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the dynamics of the. Governor race. And before we go to break, I just want to catch our listeners up. Polls show still a, a somewhat close race. Brian Kemp is, is in command. Um, most polls show him with single to low double digit leads between 12 and you know nine point lead. Um, but that's striking distance. And at least some of the polls we've seen show that a significant number of Republicans still don't know that Donald Trump has endorsed David Perdue. Whether or not that matters, we'll find out. But but that is David Perdue's ace card. That is his number one card. He's already played it, but he is continuing to try to make sure people know that he's played it. That's why he was with Donald Trump Jr. just a few days ago in coming Georgia in the exurbs and down in South Georgia in the Tifton area. Um, and that is why when Donald Trump comes later on this month uh, or early next month or for multiple rallies, we're going to hear more and more about Donald Trump. But also, as you said, you know, he he also doesn't want to try to, he doesn't want to be looked at as a one-note candidate because so so far it has been a lot of Trump, Trump, Trump. But we've also seen in recent weeks uh, more of an emphasis on attacking the Rivian project, saying that he would he would even nix it if he was governor, um, vowing to eliminate the state income tax and finding other ways to fill that 13 or $14 billion hole. <laughs> and of course, talking about Buckhead cityhood, which is a, a, a moot point right now, but saying that if he were governor, it would not be. Well, uh, you, you're right. I mean, he, he certainly has to put himself at odds with, with Kemp. He has to be a true foil to him uh, in a way that, that says that, you know, I am different. And so it's, it's, I guess the irony of it too is, uh, you know, we're looking at an incumbent governor who, uh, when they were running for an open seat, did a very effective job of convincing the Republicans that he, the I guess the Republican primary voting uh, uh, group that 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 he was the most conservative person in 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 a crowd of pretty conservative folks, and was able to uh, point to a couple of issues to say, um, you know, here's proof that this person either isn't my opponent isn't as conservative, or I would have done this, that, or the third, and so of course he has to get there. I wonder too, though, about uh, one thing with Purdue um, as as we uh, go forward, and that is just the currency of a Trump endorsement. Kind of going forward, uh, I think that uh, there's probably some evidence that it maybe isn't what it was. <laughs> uh, but I think too, also, it's it's about um, the enthusiasm for the race itself, uh, as much as as it is for Trump. And I'm very very curious to to, to find out about just the currency, the value of that Trump nomination. I mean, of course, there is a lot of value in it, but is it enough to be really decisive? Yeah, so is the rest of the nation because take Herschel out of the equation. He's polling very well, but he probably would be polling pretty well without Trump's endorsement. But if you put together David Perdue, Burt Jones, Jody Heiss, 
and Vernon Jones, the four other candidates that he's so far endorsed, and he could add more to the list. There's always Mm -hmm. talk, trust me, the Capitol about other candidates who are jumping in these races as we speak about maybe them getting Trump endorsements. But if if you just take those four, none of them are shoo-ins, obviously, right? Um, Right. Vernon Jones faces a very uphill battle in the 10th District against uh, multiple candidates, including the frontrunner Mike Collins. even though it's a very deeply conservative district, um, Republicans there uh, that I've interviewed are, are mistrustful of someone from Metro Atlanta who not so long ago was a, dis- was a, Democrat, was a Democrat, right? State right. lawmaker, um, Burt Jones. You know, some polls show him up, but um, Butch Miller is not to be trifled with and has millions of dollars in his piggy bank to spend. Um, and of course, Jody Heiss. You know, he has not been a fundraising dynamo. Um, Brad Raffensperger is in more solid position than a lot of people thought. And that race will probably end up in a runoff. Who knows what will happen, but it look, looks like now a runoff. But Jody Heiss you know, is, is not guaranteed to win that race either. So those four races alone, and then we already mentioned David Perdue running from behind, those four races don't give you, at least right now, a very enthusiastic uh, approach if you're a pro-Trump <laughs> candidate who's banking on that endorsement. Yeah, absolutely, and that, and, that, and that's the whole point. Uh, I think that that we'll, we'll find out what how much it's worth, but uh, I think it's it's diminished from what I think what it had been, and I just don't think uh, we quite know yet. Uh, you know where where it may go. Let's take a quick break. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents. Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back. Don't forget, as a bonus to Atlanta Journal-Constitution subscribers, you can sign up for the Morning Jolt, our daily political newsletter that sets the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. If you're not subscribing to the AJC, please go to subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcasts so you know what's really going on. So, Leroy, next week is a huge legislative deadline. It's crossover day. Uh, It used to be sort of a do-or-die day in the legislature. There's still ways around it, but it's still a significant deadline um, where uh, typically most bills that want to move forward, most bills need to pass at least one one chamber uh, under the gold dome to have a chance to move forward. We've already had a lot of bills passed, but... um, this this week set off a sort of scramble ahead of that deadline. We saw some significant movement, including with maybe the biggest piece of legislation, the one that might have the biggest change that you know we, we of course, report about, but doesn't grab as much attention as some of the others, which is mental health. 
This is a comprehensive bipartisan effort to bolster mental health services, and it's backed by House Speaker David Ralston, legislative leaders on, from both parties. This is a priority of, of Speaker Ralston's. He said, if nothing else passes this year, this should be the one proposal that makes it across the finish line. And we're also, also hearing from um, Democratic State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver and other Democratic leaders who say that boosting mental health resources right now and, and rethinking the way that the state provides those services is essential at this moment. Yeah, you know, this is uh, the, the sort of um, legislation that uh, is legacy building for the speaker. Uh, it's it's urgent. It's a uh, it has broad, broad benefit. Uh, it's this, the kind of thing that uh, is long overdue uh, when you think about, you know, mental health and where Georgia sits. I mean, we are probably behind some states in our thinking. Uh, I think that when you look at uh, the burdens, the burdens that are borne locally without adequate mental health care, uh, it's costly because... Mm-hmm jails become the biggest uh, providers of mental health care and they're ill-equipped. And only that, uh, the stress you put on law enforcement, because when those first responders are law enforcement, once you've got um, someone who's in, in mental distress, uh, when, the, when they're the first responders, sometimes the outcomes are horrific. I mean, the things that you don't, you would not um, expect or, or no one wants. Uh, a good example of that uh, was right here in Metro Atlanta. Uh, a few years ago in DeKalb County, we had an officer responding to a naked man who was an Air Force veteran in, in, in having a mental episode, and he wound up shooting and killing him. And uh, so the, the you know he he died. Uh, the, the officer was indicted and convicted, and he goes to prison. And the community lo- loses because uh, ultimately we were just ill-equipped that day uh, mm. to handle a mental health crisis. So. You know, as I think about this as, 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 as a newspaper editor and you start thinking about those really big things that government can do. I mean, we cover a lot of politics that takes up all the oxygen, but policy is still very important. And this is probably uh, in this session and probably in, in several sessions, uh, some of the one of the biggest policy statements uh, that uh, that George could make. You're exactly right. This is not the type of issue that energizes the base in the way that expanding gun rights or cracking down on abortion or Democrats, you know, uh, uh, perhaps expanding Medicaid, which has become a central issue for Democrats. It's not that sort of issue that that you'll see people galvanize around. You're not going to see many campaign signs. It might not be featured in ads. But when you talk about legislation that will impact um, our our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, um, and our state in such a way, this this is it. Right. And, and this is the first part of what will probably be a multi-step issue. We saw this under Governor Deal, where he spent eight years really um, overhauling the way that our criminal justice mm-hmm. system treats um, lower level nonviolent offenders and even some more violent offenders as well by the end of the, his, his criminal justice package. Um, this could be the start of a comprehensive uh, overhaul. And not to say this bill isn't comprehensive to begin with, but this could be the start of an even bigger um, step towards rethinking how we provide those services. So that is definitely something that is moving forward. Um, and it's uh, already passed the House and headed towards the Senate before the final crush. But one other issue that we're not quite sure where how this will end up, and this, Leroy, is a perennial issue. We've been talking about this year after year after year, which is gambling. Um, there's been debates over legalizing casino gambling, horse racing, 
um, expanding video gambling, whatever you have, whatever the, the sports betting, however you want to see it, there's been debates for years now about how that could help fund higher education, expand the Hope Lottery program. Um, we've got two efforts that still remain in play. The first would let Georgia voters decide if gambling should be expanded to include house racing. The second would legalize sports betting. Both of them have a lot of bipartisan support, but both of them have not moved forward, have not crossed that finish line. And it's uncertain if an election year will be the year that happens. But Speaker Ralston actually said earlier this year that he's seen more momentum behind it than ever before. Yeah, it almost seems a little inevitable considering two things, right? Uh, one is uh, what has happened with sports betting and uh, you know what happened at the federal level uh, with that, that uh, many states jumped right on board after that ruling. And if you look at southern states, uh, several southern states that are that are in our uh, in the in the deep south, uh, that that you may not have thought would readily jump on to to sports betting did right, and mm-hmm. then of course the technology. Um, so having this conversation, uh, you know, fifteen years ago, if we were talking about betting, we we're talking about uh, casinos and we we're talking about uh, racetracks, things of that nature. Uh, well, the technology has made it where, you know, you could virtually place sports bets from anywhere where it's legal. And, you know, we unfortunately are, uh, because of the, the Calvin Ridley story, uh, is, is an example of it, unfortunately. Good but, point. So, <laughs> but, but the point with that is um, the technology has put us in a different space and probably provides a little bit more comfort among people. Uh, you know, the, I think that right in the middle of the Bible Belt, uh, a lot of the objection and a lot of what uh, gambling was, which was, you know, seedy places, casinos that where, where, you know, you probably had other vice that that gambling sort of kept uh, kept fueling. Well, you know, I think that it's 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 a little different now. I think people see it differently. And I think anyone from Georgia who's gone to a city like New Orleans and you see there's a casino right they're downtown and, um, you know, there's not, it's pretty doggone corporate <laughs> and yeah. it's not out of place. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's changing some minds, but you're right about it being an election year. Maybe that does it, but I think there's probably some inevitability with gambling of some sort and maybe it isn't this session, but uh, I would not be surprised if it's not soon. I remember back in 2012 when Republican primary voters voted in sort of like a, a test, a non-binding resolution yeah, yeah, whether yeah. they would support expanding gambling. And mm-hmm. it narrowly passed, and I thought that was yeah. kind of the watershed movement. And yeah. it's 10 years later, and it's still being talked about. So Yeah, I, I'm, yeah I'm with you. That, that does seem like it. that's the place. In fact, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember where non-binding sort of things in primaries like that you put gambling on to, to rally the base because it was so unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> you plant the seed, you know, that, that, you know, something's about to happen. So, uh, but, but now you're right. I mean, again, the technology and I think that what people, many people have been able to see with what a modern, even if you talk about casino gambling, uh, what a modern casino looks like, isn't the stereotype of, I guess, what it ha- perhaps had been. And Leroy, part of our jobs at the AJC is to watch out for those things that are not quite on the radar yet, right? We talked about two issues that are definitely firmly on the radar, issues that have been uh, up for debate for a long time, but we are very closely watching for surprises, and one of the major ones involves elections. No major voting bills have gained any traction yet, but, but that really could start changing soon. 
our colleague, Mark Nisi, who is the premier voting elections reporter in the Southeast, he tells us that legislators may consider proposals to open original paper ballots to public inspection, allow the GBI to take over fraud investigations, ban drop boxes, and add identifying serial numbers to ballots. So basically, anytime law legislation opens that code section, deals with the code section around the election processes, it could be an effort by folks, you know, Republican lawmakers, um, to revisit some of those changes that they made last year that caused so much controversy. Even though Governor Deal and Speaker Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan all seem on the same page, they feel like um, last year took care of their their own their own GOP centered um, election issues. That there's always a chance that there could be some last minute revisions, and uh, that is something we'll be very closely watching because that has the potential to be not just a huge net state story, but a huge national story all over again. Oh, yeah. So uh, if you think about some of the, the biggest things that could come out, I mean, we talked about healthcare being the really big policy issue. Any change to elections going into a big election year. Uh, so not only this year, but we're talking about uh, two years from now. Uh, yeah, those are those given the debate that we've had, uh, given what we're seeing in other states, seeing the, the debate all these debates being nationalized and also seeing things like, uh, you know, drop boxes being a convenience too for people. So, you know, as, as we look back into uh, what we did uh, with the law that passed last year, uh, you know, it did curtail the use of drop boxes, but it didn't take them completely out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Well, if you take them completely out of the equation uh, at that point, um, you know, you, you, you will do something that will, uh, I mean, fewer people will have access to the ballot. There's just no question about that, because yeah. once you take that off the table, then um, some folks will adapt, but some some folks inevitably won't. So, you know, that's the kind of scrutiny I think that we'll have to give to anything that could pop up at the last moment. Clearly, there is probably going to be uh, a bid to find some uh, some partisan advantage uh, with that. And, and, and you mentioned uh, the efforts that have been happening across the country. Uh, but this is uh, this is something that we have to be vigilant about as a newspaper. Um, you know, if there's uh, one thing that's probably the most important thing, it's, it's to make sure that we've got an informed electorate. Right. And also mm -hmm. that access to the ballots uh, is, is, you know, within the bounds of the law and aren't so onerous that they uh, that they put disincentive to people to participate in our democracy. I mean, that's that's not, you know, who we are as Americans and that's not who, who we want to be as Georgians. But uh, I say all that just to say that if that is a last minute um, uh, consideration, it's going to change a little bit of the tenor of the session. Yeah, already a very high stakes, very fraught session. It was interesting being at qualifying week, and which continues in the next few days, um, seeing rivals bump into each other in the hallways, even standing in the same line. Um, just today, I saw two Democrats who want to take on Marjorie Taylor Greene literally right next to each other in the Democratic primary line. And just a few days ago, I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene and two of her Republican opponents standing next to each other in line. So, you know, it's interesting because it shows we can all be civil, no one's throwing chairs at each other, but also how divisive and fraught and polarized our entire system can be sometimes too, because uh, emotions are raw right now at the Capitol. They've been raw for a while over redistricting, over cityhood uh, pushes, over... Um, and over some of these sort of polarizing concepts. So it's neat also to see re Republicans and Democrats rally together to get behind mental health legislation, to get behind some of this bipartisan consensus issues. And 
they were that's why we have the best job in the business to be able to cover all the all the shenanigans <laughs> yeah. under the gold dome. Yeah. You know, of that list of of things, Greg, that you mentioned, uh, yeah. I gotta say this just as as a newspaper editor. I got to say my, my favorite stories are, are sometimes pay stories. <laughs> I, they they oh, almost yeah. never get done, but, but, I, but it, it's one of those things. I think that's a, a, a basic transparency issue. And um, so legislator pay going from 17,000 to 36, you know, doubling uh, that that's a, 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 you know, that would be a, a pretty big story. And there's probably, you know, a, a sober conversation you can have around it. But but usually if you're talking about the percentage of this, which, of course, would be, um, you know, if it's 17 to 36, that's actually more than 100 percent increase. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's it makes sometimes the debate kind of difficult. But but pay stories sometimes are, are, are my favorite because, you know, that, that it usually is like one of those ultimate uh, kind of levels of transparency. If our mm-hmm. government's going to be transparent, uh, we should know. And uh, and also, too, uh, if if people who have the power to grant themselves uh, a salary, uh, that should that should be something you do in the light of day. That, I know that's a yeah. digression. That's a digression. But but anyway, no, uh, you're right. Pay, I mean, pay, look, pay stories are my impor- are, are my favorite. <laughs> well, and they for their readers favorites, too, because they always send to get good reader traction. But no, lawmakers have been paid seventeen thousand dollars a year for years now. And this would Pretty double. This would pay boost pay to about thirty six thousand dollars a year um, if voters approve it. And you know we, we're seeing a wave of retirements. We've seen probably thirty to forty retirements so far in the, under the gold dome, mostly in the Georgia House because it's bigger. Um, but lawmakers, who especially those who have been here for a long time, um, uh, you know, it, it is a hindrance. On they don't want you to weep for them necessarily because they they control the levers of power in other ways. So there there are definite perks to the job. Um, but there's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort. They are taking away time from their families, their businesses, especially lawmakers who live outside of Metro Atlanta who are driving. You know, if you're down in South Georgia, you're driving. You're talking eight hour round trips, right, um, yeah. from some of these places. So with with that, with, with gas being uh, yeah not cheap today. Exactly, which is a topic of another episode. Uh, but in the meantime, that's all, all the time we have for today's show. That's, thanks for listening. Please rate, review, follow, share, and subscribe. We'll see you on Friday on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, oh, oh.